You know Jordan is a unique person when he invites his brother-in-law to his own pulpit. He must be so nervous right now. Unbelievable. <laughs> so I want to thank Jordan for asking me to come do his job in the middle of my vacation. Thank you. <laughs> and I now have eight embarrassing stories about him I'd like to share with you. Just kidding, I can't wait for you to visit Vancouver. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us, not that you had much choice. It's lovely to open God's word together. I wonder if anyone here likes murder mystery novels or movies, or you're known to binge on the most gruesome, horrific crimes and how they're solved. Can you leave your hands in the air? <laughs> and uh, Jordan, do you wanna get a pen? It's gonna be a support group after the service. Um, our passage this morning, I'm going to be focusing on Isaiah 49, our Old Testament reading, which is on page two of our bulletin. And reading it is a little bit like a whodunit murder mystery. It's a bit like this image. I'm grateful it's above me. Isaiah 49 is given 750 years before Jesus. That is so far before Bethlehem and the birth at Christmas. And Jerusalem at the time is completely surrounded by foreign armies, and her people have completely turned away from God. It's a very dark time in the history of God's people, and God, through his prophet Isaiah, speaks while his people are literally dwelling in darkness. And the text, like the painting, centers upon a mysterious, anonymous, holy face, a servant of God who seems incredibly important in God's plans for the world, and yet their identity, incredibly, is never disclosed. They're never named. The servant remains anonymous for the entire reading. And as you listen to God's word in Isaiah 49, and as the desperate Israel, the first hearers, would have been clinging to the every word they heard, they would have been wondering, who is this servant who's coming? How is he going to save us today when we're surrounded by enemy armies and living in a land of deep darkness? And his identity is never given. It's a mystery. It's a riddle. An unsolved case. And each verse, as we peel away at it, gives a little more information about this unnamed servant so that by the end, like a detective, we can deduce who we think it is. So there are four clues from our text to help solve the mystery of the servant's identity. In verse 1, first we hear about the servant's calling. The second clue is in verse 2, where we hear about his power. We're then told the servant's mission in verses 3 and 6, and we finish when we're told how he is received in verses 4 and 7. So Isaiah 49 reveals the servant's calling, power, purpose, and reception. I tried really hard to get those all to start with P, and I failed horribly. I'm sorry. And when you put them all together, we can solve the secret of who this servant is. So first clue, the servant's calling. Look at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from far away. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. In Isaiah 49, notice who is speaking to us. 
It's not God. It's not Isaiah. It's the servant. The servant of the Lord is speaking to us through Isaiah. Now, doesn't that strike you as odd? A prophet is a person who's appointed by God to be God's mouthpiece, to speak God's words into a particular place at a particular time to a particular people. But here in Isaiah 49, God isn't the one who's speaking through his prophet. The servant is speaking to us. The servant who isn't on earth and who isn't even born yet is speaking to us through Isaiah to tell us that God chose them and named them. How is it possible for anyone but God to speak through God's prophet? In verse 1, the servant tells the whole world that they were called before they were born and they were named while still in his mother's womb. This is not normal. What the servant is saying is utterly unique because no one else is called by God before their birth because no ordinary human is capable of listening or responding. Was anyone here called by God before they were born? I imagine you don't know. It's a bit foggy, isn't it? We don't remember. Now, certainly we're known by God before we're born. We're imagined by God. We're created by him. We can even be consecrated or set apart before birth, just as Jeremiah was. But we aren't called by God in utero. And even if you were, incredibly, you wouldn't know you were, because we're not conscious or capable of hearing. Also, historically, you can't name someone who isn't born yet either. In our modern secular medical systems, you aren't even considered a person until you're born, so you don't have a name, you don't have an identity in utero. And in the Jewish setting, similarly, you weren't named until the eighth day after your birth. But this servant before birth was both called and they were named by God. And this person knows they were called and named before their birth. This servant has an identity and a calling given by God before birth. And this servant is alive with God before their worldly birth and able to speak through God's prophet making them utterly unique and unlike any other person. So verse 1, you might think, is a throwaway, but it's actually incredible. Because it shows us this servant, this holy face, is no ordinary person. They exist with God, called by God, named by God, alive and conscious before their birth. That's clue 1, the servant's calling. In verse 2, we get the second clue as we learn about the servant's power. Look at verse 2. The servant continues, He, God, made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. We learn here the servant is with God. He's hid in God's hand. His mouth is made by God like a master sword. He's fashioned by God as a polished, deadly arrow. So we find out his power comes from God. God formed him. And the servant's weapon is his words. His power comes from his mouth. The servant will be unlike any other world leader or superpower because their power comes not by force. In our world, historically, might is right. And the strongest leader, the superpower, is the one who gets to dictate how the world is run. Who lives? 
and who dies. But this servant, kept hidden with God, will be totally different. Their power comes not through violence or through intimidation or through conquest, but through words. Isaiah 49 is the so-called servant song, the second servant song in Isaiah's prophecies. And the first, last week's text, was Isaiah 42, which tells us that the servant comes to establish justice on the earth, and listen, he will do it without breaking a single blade of grass or blowing out a single flickering candle. The servant's power comes from his words. He speaks, the earth melts, eyes are opened, bodies are raised, prisoners are freed, kingdoms fall, the world is remade by his word. So the second clue to the servant's identity is the source of their power. The servant is with God, and the servant's words contain the power of God. He will reveal God's word, and that revelation will change the created order forever. The servant brings the word of God. You could say, with John looking over my shoulder, he is the word of God sharper than any sword. This servant is able by his word to overcome any defense or penetrate any heart. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So far in the mystery of the servant, we have two clues. First, they were called and named before birth. They're unlike any other human. And second, they're equipped with power in their words that make them God's most powerful instrument. Clue three, we learn of the servant's purpose. This is in verses three and six. Look at verse three. God said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Here we run into a bit of a problem. Because I've been saying my whole sermon is based upon the servant in Isaiah 49 being anonymous. He's an unnamed mystery figure that we need to solve, right? But verse 3, the servant's explicitly named. They're called Israel. The servant, therefore, is Israel, the people of God. Mystery solved, case closed. Not so fast, my dear Watson. If you go back to verse 1, the language is explicit and detailed about this servant being an individual, not an entire nation. Listen again, the Lord called me before I was born, while I was in my mother's womb. John Oswald, a commentator, writes, this is too explicit in language for it to be a collective idea for all of Israel. So verse 1 disqualifies us from claiming Israel is the servant. And so does verse 2, which claims the servant's power comes from their words. And that's certainly not true for God's people, whose words more often than not are complaining, doubting, grumbling, and cursing God. So we have a problem here, because verse 3 says the servant is Israel. But verses 1 and 2 show us why the servant can't be Israel. It's a riddle. But what if the servant here, go with me for a minute in verse 3, what if Israel is referring not to the servant's identity, but to their function? What if the servant's purpose is to be Israel, to do what Israel was chosen to do and is utterly failed at? In the Bible, God's people, Israel, is called by God to be the means whereby all nations will come to know God. That is Israel's mission, 
her purpose. So when God chooses Abraham way back in Genesis 12, he blesses him, he makes a covenant with him, and then he lays out the purpose for which he has chosen Abraham. I have blessed you so that you will bless others, so that the whole world will be blessed through you. So the purpose of Abraham's children, the people of God, Israel, is to receive God's blessing and then to share God's blessing to the ends of the earth. God's people are to be transmitters of the glory of God. They receive God's blessing, they behold his glory, and then they share God's blessing, re-revealing his glory to a new audience. That was the purpose of Israel. And if you know the history of Israel by the time of Isaiah, they failed miserably in this role. Israel took God's blessing and they relished in it. They gorged themselves on it. They got fat with it. And they put up walls so that others couldn't enjoy it too. Israel set up these endless rules of segregation so that God's blessing could not be transmitted to others. Israel, by the time of Isaiah, has utterly failed in her calling. She is Israel in name only, not at all in her function. She has rejected God and has rejected her call to be the conduit of God's blessing. So God now chooses this servant to pick up the mantle, to be what Israel has failed to be, to be a new Israel, a faithful Israel in whom God will be glorified. This is the servant's purpose, to be a faithful Israel. And if you're skeptical, it's confirmed in verse 6. God says, you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So the servant's first assignment is to save Israel, Abraham's descendants. So the servant can't be Israel because they're sent to save Israel. It's like if you see someone drowning and you say, figure it out, man. No, 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 you send someone else to save the person who's drowning. So Israel can't save herself, so the servant can't be God's people. It must be someone else. And then God says something astounding at the end of verse 6. The Lord says, it is too light a thing that you should just be my servant to save Israel. It's too small for you. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So this servant, called and named before birth, God's chosen instrument containing God's power in their words, is being sent to save God's people, and then while they're at it, the whole world. That through this one servant, God will be glorified. Any ideas on who the servant may be? We still have one more clue. Up to this point, it all sounds pretty rosy, pretty easy, pretty triumphant for the servant. But if you're paying attention, you noticed I skipped verse 4, which tells us lastly of the servant's reception. This is what the servant says in verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. To the servant, it looks like their incredible, cosmic, universal mission to save the whole world has failed. Despite being called and named by God, being sent by God, affirmed by God, being equipped with God's power in their words, it looks to the servant like their mission is an abject 
failure. I have labored for nothing. The servant is in a position of frustration and futility. Have you ever been in this place? Has this church ever been in this place? Have you ever felt like God wants to do an incredible work through you? You've been anointed, you're living in full expectation that something incredible is going to happen, that all the pieces are coming together. And then as you age and the doors you thought were opening don't, you begin to think, have I been laboring in vain? Has all the money and all the years and all the effort and all the strength been for nothing? As a church, have you ever looked out and thought, our city isn't becoming more like Jesus? The kingdom isn't advancing here. In fact, it seems to be retreating. We can't even buy a building or whatever. Well, that's the futility the servant feels. And we're told why in verse 7. The servant, God says, is one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations he has come to save. He is a slave to worldly rulers. He is under their power, not above it. This servant will be rejected, hated, enslaved. That is their reception. It'll look like their entire mission has been a total failure to them and to everybody else. Do you get the pain of this? Have you ever lived in that pain? Now look in the middle of verse 4. The servant is frustrated. They feel like it's all futile. And then they say, but surely. Yet surely, the servant says. That is the strongest possible language of rebuttal or contrast. My life seems frustratingly futile. My ministry seems like a total waste of time. Despite all the lovely things God has said about me, my mission seems to have fallen totally flat. And yet, but surely, surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. Despite what it looks like on the ground, despite the seeming futility of the mission, despite the hatred of the world, despite the seeming weakness, the servant is completely confident in God, that God's will will be done, that the mission to which God has called him will be accomplished. It will seem like the servant's mission is an abject failure, and yet, but surely, God is with him, and he trusts God completely. The servant will be rendered powerless, hated, enslaved. It's unthinkable. How can the servant who's been sent to bring salvation to the whole world be under the power of the rulers and enslaved by them? How is it possible that the one who contains the power of God in their words, the one who sits in the Father's hand, who is his chosen instrument to save the whole world and bring God glory, this servant will be enslaved, despised, universally hated? It's impossible. It's articulated this way in the Gospel of John. 
the true light was coming into the world. And he was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. God's own servant, who is called and empowered to save the whole world, will be rejected and enslaved and hated. It's unthinkable. And yet, but surely, my cause is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. The passage ends in verse 7. Well, that's where I'm ending it. It does end in verse 7. Good for me. The passage ends in verse 7 with God himself, Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, saying this to the servant. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now, the servant will be rejected and oppressed for a time, but ultimately will become the source of the world's worship because he has been chosen by God. He is the Lord's chosen one, the holy one, his anointed. His mission will not fail because the Lord who is faithful has chosen him. I love this painting because I feel like it captures the contrast of the glory and the frustration and futility. So we have our four clues. Do you know who this servant is? Well, there's only one candidate. There's only one whose words contain the power of God, who is sent from the hand of God, who has been rejected and hated and enslaved, whose mission seems futile and failed, and yet whose cause is with the Lord who will be worshipped and glorified as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. There is only one who has been chosen to save the whole world. He's the reason we're here. It's Christ. It's a future sent Messiah. It's one who's commissioned to be the new Israel, the perfect representation of what Israel was called to be, the one who will extend God's blessing to the ends of the earth, the one who has come to save all people the one who will be worshipped as Lord of all. It's the one who John the Baptist sees and declares, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The servant is Jesus. Jesus is speaking to us through Isaiah in chapter 49. He is the Word. He is with God. He is God. Jesus is the new Israel sent to save the world. He's sent to save you, wherever you're at, whoever you are, however dark your reality. He's here for you. He's God's chosen servant come to serve you. Jesus is the one bringing glory of God to the ends of the earth from coastlands and distant lands. Every promise of God finds its fulfillment, its yes, in him. In him we see, we behold God's salvation. Because in him we gaze at God. He is our reward. In him, 
our future is not futile. So, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Amen.